From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. John Roa is an entrepreneur at heart. He's been dabbling in small ventures since he was a young boy. By the age of 26, he had founded a tech consulting and design firm, Okta. It sounds weird to say, but it's kind of a classic, like, young success story insofar as that, you know, I got to go from going broke to all of a sudden, yeah, as you said, you're on private jets and you're exclusive events and you're being photographed and you're on magazine covers. And so for, for anybody watching, it would have been like, wow, how great must that be, right? Because that's how we portray success. And no one knew what was really going on. There was a dark side to all of this. Internally, Roa was struggling. That was me as a, as a young man struggling to run this business and to keep my head above water mentally, personally, professionally, because I every day I, I struggled with mental health issues. In the company's fourth year, he had a severe breakdown. I lost consciousness at my house, a friend called 911, and I, I regained my consciousness four days later in the hospital. For Roa, it led to a complete reset. He sold his company to Salesforce and began a period of reflection and recovery. I think that narratives like what mine appeared to be of just like, oh, look, some kids are in a tech company, sold it, got rich and, you know, rode off into the sunset is very dangerous because then no one understands what really happens behind the scenes, which are common stories. My story is not unique. In fact, entrepreneurs suffer from a higher rate of mental illness than the national average, and Roa wants them to know they're not alone. His own story is the subject of his newly released book called A Practical Way to Get Rich and Die Trying. We talk about the book, his own story, and much more in this episode of Out of Office. Here's John Roa. So at 36, it's kind of young to publish a memoir. Why was it so important to you to get this story, your story, out? I've been an entrepreneur since I was 14 years old. What I love to do is to build businesses and solve problems and take risks and those kind of things. And so at age 26, I hadn't had a lot of success doing exactly that. I was struggling to make my own way. I had a number of failed startups, both from bad business ideas, but also from from very dire circumstances, getting businesses stolen by friends, losing, you know, other kind of deals. And so I'd learned a lot of hard lessons and wanted to give it one more shot. I started a company at age 26 called Okta, almost exactly 10 years ago. And we were an innovation and design consultancy. And so this business, admittedly, I did not have a lot of reason to be starting. I did not have a fancy design degree from Stanford. I just saw a business opportunity and went for it. And two years later, it was 
the single fastest growing design agency in the world and was one of the fastest growing of companies of any kind in America for the middle three years of our business. And so by all accounts, the business was very successful. What no one could see is what was taking place behind the scenes. And that was me as a young man struggling to run this business and to keep my head above water mentally, personally, professionally, because I, every day I, I'd struggle with mental health issues, the risk and, and stress and pressure of that business really put a lot of pressure on my mental health. And so I suffered deep depression, anxiety, and other things during that time. And then when we started having success, you know, things like imposter syndrome really started clicking in. I wasn't sure if I had lied and faked my whole way to success or if I actually deserved it. There's a lot of doubt and fear. And it led to all of the ways to cope with that that you shouldn't use from uh, substance abuse to, you know, partying and just kind of destructive lifestyle, all because I didn't want to confront what I was dealing with. And it was easier to not. And so that, just that going back for a minute, when you said you, you yeah. know, you slipped into deep depression and you were really yeah. struggling with your mental health. Did you do all this silently? Did you reach out Absolutely. to anyone? Not a single person knew. Uh, I was scared to tell anybody. I was I was scared that anybody would know what I was dealing with. Uh, I was I was scared they would judge me. I was scared that they wouldn't believe in me anymore. As an entrepreneur, we need everyone to believe in us. Constituents, employees, you know, clients, investors, the markets, the public. And I feared that if anybody knew that I wasn't this perfect superhero-ish young tech entrepreneur that, that I portrayed myself to be, that they would lose faith in me and people wouldn't believe in me anymore. And that is a poison pill, at least in my eyes, for an entrepreneur at that time when no one did believe me. I, I had nobody backing me. I mean, this is a bootstrap company, no investors, no co-founders, no mentors, nothing. It was just me. So I had to put this persona of perfection out 24-7. And what was really going on was anything but perfection. But I was so scared of what the response would be that everybody knew that. So I kept it all very much bottled up. Did you reach out to your family? No. And, and I'm very close to my family. I talk to my mom every single day. And I, I would tell her everything was great. I would tell her we were crushing it uh, because I, was, I didn't want it. I didn't want to hear myself admit it. I was in such denial of what I was experiencing that if I had to tell her or anybody else, it, I then would be admitting it to myself. And that would, have, that would have put me over the edge. And so it was a exercise in just continually burying what I was dealing with in order to not deal with it and just hope that it resolved itself at some point. And that is obviously a poor strategy in that situation. So you're struggling deeply on the inside, but on the yeah. outside, you're jet setting across the country, you're being awarded and felicitated, yeah. and everything's looking great. Yeah, that's right. And on the outside, it looks like, you know, the, the it, it sounds weird to say, but it's kind of a classic, like, young success story insofar as that you know, I got to go from going broke to all of a sudden, yeah, as you said, you're on private jets and you're exclusive events and you're being photographed and you're on magazine covers. And so for, for anybody watching, it would have been like, wow, how great must that be? Right. Because that's how we portray success. And no one knew what was really going on. And, and as you can imagine, you can't do that forever. And for me, it kind of ended with a severe mental breakdown in the fourth year of the company. I lost consciousness at my house, a friend called 911. I regained 
my consciousness four days later in the hospital. I had been awake in the four days. I have no memory of it. Um, I suffered disassociative amnesia. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was. I was effectively paralyzed for two of those days. I really couldn't move. I had this incredible kind of like nerve pain going through my body. It was the worst experience of my entire life. And they can't tell you in that moment if you're going to recover. They can't tell you if you're going to leave the hospital. It is the wake up call of wake up calls. And that was my mind screaming back at me that you can't do this. You have to stop or you are not going to survive this journey. That was one of many events that, that led me towards, I need to sell this company. I need to get out. I need to, to, to remove the bases of this, of what is causing all of this and then repair, you know, my mind and body. And that's what I did. So we, you know, the, the irony of all this is despite what I was dealing with, the company was doing great. <laughs> you know, the, the company was, you know, profitable and growing and, and pristine. And, you know, it was, it was me that couldn't handle it. And so when I went to sell the business, there was a lot of interest. There was a lot of people that were very interested in acquiring this business. And nine months later, Salesforce, the biggest company in San Francisco, fully acquired the business. And, you know, that is a ridiculous result for a five-year-old agency that was bootstrapped and, you know, founded by someone like me. And obviously, it goes without saying, it changed everything. You know, the, the next you know, the next day you have more money than you ever imagined you could, which is not always a good thing that, that you, have to, you have to work out what that means and how it's going to affect you. And then you got to reset and say, you know, I got to undo a lot of damage now from the last five years. And that's what I did. You know, this is a very long winded answer to your original question. Why did I write this book? And this is why, because I believe there's a lot of value and power in honesty and transparency. And I believe we, we don't have nearly enough of it in business and especially in entrepreneurship and kind of success. I think that narratives like what mine appeared to be of just like, oh, look, some kid started a tech company, sold it, got rich and, you know, rode off into the sunset is very dangerous because then no one understands what really happens behind the scenes, which are common stories. My story is not unique. We just aren't really able to tell it. And I, I really want to facilitate more of that narrative by first using my own to set the stage and then encourage others to share theirs so we can start to normalize this stuff. So the next version of me doesn't feel the need to hide it and bury it. They don't feel ashamed. They don't feel like the first person to deal with it, et cetera. One thing you touched upon in your book and I've been reading about is that actually mental health issues or depression is more commonly found amongst entrepreneurs. Yeah. Well, I didn't find that, but I, I learned that and it made a lot of sense to me. And so the gentleman who has done more work in that department is a doctor in Silicon Valley called Dr. Michael Freeman. And he's actually become a very close friend of mine in this process, which is amazing. You know, when I read his paper, it's called Are Entrepreneurs Touched with Fire? It spoke to me like nothing really had. I was like, oh my gosh, somebody understands. Somebody, somebody knows what I was dealing with. And it has been incredible to hear how he perceives all of this and what he sees and what he's learned in his research. And yes, Entrepreneurs have 60% more mental health issues than the general public, which is a crazy number given how high mental health rates are, you know, overall. And then in terms of the specific kind of ailments, you know, things like bipolar and depression are the highest at like six to eight X more than the, the public. Suicide, substance abuse are kind of in that four times category. So, I mean, these are crazy high numbers. And the question then becomes, is it that we are predisposed for this and then 
that's why we've kind of become entrepreneurs? Or does entrepreneurship create these kind of ailments? And what he's kind of figured out is it's somewhat of a circular, you know, kind of condition where entrepreneurs, we are biologically built a very certain way. And it's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> We're a little bit loose and and we take risk and, and we we think differently and we're a little more fragile than, than others. And we're drawn towards this game, which then just piles on the stress and the pressure and the risk. And then all of those, all that fragility and some of those issues that we have mentally start to, you know, really show themselves because of what we're dealing with. And then it kind of cycles and cycles and cycles. And so it's really a part and parcel kind of thing. And, and his research is phenomenal. When you had your breakdown and when you were in hospital and you woke up four days later, the recovery after that, can you tell us a little bit about that? What what went into your healing process yeah. and what really worked for you? Well, it, what was interesting is when I first came out of that, I, I met a doc, the same doctor. I met him right after. My friend, one of the few people who even knew I was in the hospital, said, you need to talk to this guy. And he was brilliant. But what he said to me was very interesting. He said, listen, you're still in this game. You're still the CEO of this company. If I fix you now, you will actually be not as equipped to continue running this business because as weird as it sounds, you're somewhat attuned for it. Like clearly you pushed yourself too far this week, but but overall, you know, these kind of heightened executive functions and these kind of lowered limbic functions and all these different things, you kind of built yourself to do this. And so if we completely level you out and balance your life, you might not be able to perform you know, so that's when he was like, get out of this thing, sell this company, and then we'll do the real recovery, which was a weird thing to hear somebody say. And that's what I did. So we went and sold the company, very tough period. And then after that is when I was able to recover properly. Because Did then, you not at some stage off. think, I don't want to sell this company? I mean, after everything that you had put into this, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, did you at all mm-hmm. think that, no, actually, you know what, I, I'm not going to sell? No, it's quite the opposite. The premise, especially amongst entrepreneurs, that the business is your baby, I think is a very dangerous premise for entrepreneurs. A business isn't your baby. It's just, unless you have like a little lifestyle business and you're selling, you know, croissants at you know, the, the corner store. If you're doing what I did, if you're in the high growth game, it's, it's not your baby. It is a machine. And you have to treat it that way or else you'll get too emotionally invested. And so for the recovery, and this happened post, you know, we did a lot of mental work, some of which makes, you know, people would expect things like talk therapy, but a lot were things I didn't even know existed. Biofeedback, neurofeedback, high dose ketamine injections, which is a whole different ball of wax. That's a crazy experience, but I've done a lot of that um, and everything else. I mean, you know, different IV therapy. I still swallow about 50 supplements a day that, you know, to keep my body, you know, I, I got into martial arts. So it, it was a wide ranging array of, of therapies and, and methods um, and some did work for me. Some did. I, I had an amazing doctor who kind of really understood what I was doing. But the sad part is I needed the means to do that. And, and everyone doesn't have access to this. And this is one of these, especially in this side of the world, this is one of these things that when I talk about it, I wish I could say, well, everyone just go do this. But that's obviously impossible. And that's sad to me because if I didn't have the means to do that, I never could have got that level of care. And, and that is a that's a whole different ball of wax. But that is a huge problem. Well, I think the first problem, as you pointed out, is A, acknowledging that you need help, which is something you didn't do early on, right? That's right. Breaking that culture of silence. I wrote in the book that it's kind of a a new age, don't ask, don't tell policy. Like, no one's going to ask you how you're doing, and you don't tell how you're doing. Like, like it is an unspoken thing amongst these entrepreneurs that we just don't talk about it. And that's a 
problem, especially amongst peers. You know, I, most of my friend group were entrepreneurs back in those, those days, as you'd imagine they would be. And we never once talked about it. We never once checked in on each other. We're friends. <laughs> like it's, it's not that we, but it's, it's a, because we all are playing that same kind of toxic game. And what I wrote again in the book is if you put a hundred entrepreneurs in the room and you ask each one individually how they're doing, their response unequivocally will be, we're crushing it. We're doing amazing. We couldn't be better. Even though 99% of those are on their way out of business. It makes a little bit of sense, given that we have to build our brands and we have to connotate success. But at the same time, that's ridiculous. Like that, that is not how the, the, the culture should demand we are. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're reading so much about people struggling with mental health issues, uh, yeah. anxiety. Hasn't this made it much worse, not just for entrepreneurs, but for, for the general population? And what's your advice? I mean, where do we even start encouraging people to seek help? Yeah, Ugh. This year is, I, I couldn't imagine a more difficult time to be an entrepreneur than in 2020. I think about if, if this was 10 years ago and I was in my first or second year of my business, this would have put me out of business. This would have been it. My company, Okta, would not have survived COVID. You know, in seeking support during this time is, is very difficult for a series of, and I've heard this from people, is that, first of all, we have, we're consumed with everything else. I mean, the, the divisiveness in this country, the, the politics, the, the racial unrest, the, we have, our, our worlds are so consumed right now that we're not even stopping long enough to consider our own mental health. And so it's becoming a lower priority, which is not good at all. And, you know, people are economically struggling. You know, unfortunately, a lot of mental health care is not free or even covered by insurance at times. Like my therapist who I depend on, I pay out of pocket. I, I, I have fantastic insurance. They don't cover any of it. That's me with great insurance. So I, you know, and so, so it's, it's a huge problem that there's a massive cost to take care of ourselves mentally, which is another massive deterrent in a year like this. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have the answer for the best levels of support, but whatever those are, you know, whether that's formal, things like therapy, or if it's informal, if that's confiding in friends or family or, or the people that are close to you and having honest conversations and, and checking in on people. As I said, I mean, the, the simple, simple question of like, how are you really doing is one we don't ask about as humans, even to people that we love, because that, again, you're, you're then demanding vulnerability, but that's okay. And so I make a point to do that with my entire close circle of people, my friends and family. There's still a little bit of of shame, a little bit of embarrassment, right? When people admit that oh, yeah. they're struggling with mental health. But how do we really push that forward that it's that it's okay to not be okay and to admit it? 
how do we yes. make it more accepted? I mean, do we need more people like you to talk about it? Do, do companies need to push it through for employees? But then what about yeah. entrepreneurs who don't work for big companies? Well, I think it does come from people with the bigger platforms. And that is, thankfully, something that's happening, especially you know here in the U.S. that I've observed a lot, is folks that were normally in these kind of protected classes who don't talk about mental health have begun to talk about it. And that can be celebrities or people like that, that, that people revere as these kind of perfect people with perfect lives have started to lead the charge that we're struggling too. And, and here's what life looks like. And I think that that does help a lot. I mean, more than it should, like I, I, this whole celebrity culture I struggle with, but if that's one thing that can come out of it, that's helpful. It's like, keep doing it because if somebody looks up to somebody as this superhero and then they're like, oh, that person's flawed, then it, it starts to normalize. So I think that is a big part of it. I think education is also a part of it because we throw these terms around and like, You'll hear people use terms like OCD as to describe, you know, that they like their their living room clean. Like, so we don't always understand what stuff means. And so I think that people, you know, pushing education into to, to, to first understand and then to normalize what these conditions are. Like there could be somebody who's suffering from depression that just thinks they're, they're having a tough week and, and, and has no clue it's actually depression. And so... When they then hear somebody else is depressed, they're like, wow, that person's really screwed up, whatever. When they're probably suffering from the same thing, they just don't even know that's what it is. So I think that we have to continue to, to understand what these ailments are and then understand it is the greatest feeling in the world to start to deal with them. Like once you find that right therapist and you can start to confront these things, it is awesome. Like it is, I do it every single week. It's one of the best two hour chunks of my week is sitting down with my guy, Vince, here in New York. And it, I just love it. I can speak freely. He gets it. We, we, we laugh. We, you know, it's like it is the best two hours. And I come out of that meeting so energized and so kind of ready to take on the world kind of feeling. And I think if, you know, again, I know it's not always accessible and it's always hard to find the right person. But if people put a little more effort into feeling how good it is to handle some of this and to to be freed from some of these things that we might think is just normal. We might think, hey, I just wake up foggy every single day because that's how I am. It's like, well, maybe it's not. And, and maybe there is something else you could start to feel. And so I think there's a lot of aspects, but but this is why I'm, I'm happy that, that you hear about it way more than you did years ago. Some of the stigma is starting to rise, even though it has not fully risen. And, and I hope to be a part of that solution. It's almost more accepted when it's in the creative industries, isn't it? A hundred percent, yes. When it's an artist or a movie star or a pop star, yeah, it's almost yeah. like uh, you know, folks in the creative industry. But when it comes to people in the business world, our expectation is different. Yes, and this is a great point, Malika. So this is I talked to my friend about this, who used to be one of the most famous rock stars of the nineteen nineties, literally the top of that world. And you know, it's so interesting, and I'm trying to figure out how to frame this to not make it a 20 minute story. So he describes being at the height of this game, right? Where he's selling out Madison Square Garden, even the cover of Rolling Stone. That that's this guy. And he then tells me, he's like, but looking back, I was allowed to be a sex addict, a heroin addict. You know, all of those things were, were almost revered in the rock star world. But he said, I could never have been depressed. 
you know, like there, there, there were classes of ailments he was allowed to have and others that he certainly could not have. But that's now evolved, right? It's a lot of the musicians who are leading that charge around mental health, people like Lady Gaga and others who have almost built their identity and their brand on that vulnerability. So you're seeing in 30 years, or call it 20 to 30 years, an industry like that has evolved. You know, the arts has always been quite open to, to mental health because we've had so much evidence that great artists have a lot of mental health issues. And I think that you're you're starting to see athletes. This is brand new, at least over here. Brand new. Athletes were always the macho, you know, strong, invincible. You're hearing a lot of this. And, and it's causing controversy. And this is when you know that is adjusting. There was a, a one of the quarterbacks of the Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott, recently talked about his depression. And there was a big sports analyst who came down on him. And he said, don't talk about that. You are the quarterback. You are the CEO of that team. You should not be depressed. And it obviously, <laughs> it's the most ridiculous statement ever. It, I mean, it, it. my blood was boiling reading that. But that just happened. That was a couple of weeks ago. So it feels like sports is kind of in the process of, of making that transition. You know, music was a couple decades ago. Arts was many decades ago. Sports is now. So you're starting to see it. It's starting to build towards change. And I hope that entrepreneurship and business people are in that, are, in, are next. <laughs> I hope we have our, our shot next because there's a lot of struggle and a lot of issues amongst people like me. And I hope that we can start to normalize that, especially for the next generation that we're going to depend on for building the companies that we rely on. Do you think you might ever go back to being an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I've, I'm involved in about 30 companies right now in some capacity. Uh, so, you know, that will never, yeah, it'll never go away. I love the game. I love the hustle. I love making a difference. I love building. I love innovating. But I'll never do what I did before. I'll never bet my entire livelihood and my health and my life on a tech company. But I'll always be an entrepreneur. I was at dinner with a friend the other night, and like literally by the end of dinner, there's like three new businesses that came out of it. So I mean, this this will never stop. But you know, th there is a bigger picture that I'm starting to form now. That you know, even if I create the next great tech company, it was a billion dollar company, that isn't going to do it for me anymore. There needs to be something more to it. And so the conversations I'm having now are really like, how do I make a true difference while doing what I do best? And so that's been really exciting, and that's been a fun conversation to have. Well, I wish you good luck in uh, whatever comes thank next. You. And thank you for your candor and for sharing your story. Well, thanks for having me on. This is a really great conversation. I appreciate it. I think a lot of people can really benefit from hearing about what you went through. And I hope it gives them courage to come out and say that they're not okay if they're not okay. So thank you so much. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I hope that people want to connect as well. Like, I love to talk, as you can tell, I love talking about this. And so you want to find me on social media or, or whatever. But like, you know, I want to facilitate more of this conversation. That was my conversation with John Roa. Do reach out to him if you'd like to. He's John Roa on Twitter. I know John would love to hear from you and so would I. You can tweet me anytime. My handle is This Is Malika. I'd love to know if you're enjoying this podcast and get your feedback. Thank you for joining us this week and remember to check out some other episodes of Out of Office on Bloomberg.com, on the Bloomberg Terminal, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspare. I'm Malika Kapoor. Thank you for listening and stay well. 
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.